Hello and welcome to Healthline 3. I'm Terry Simmons. Today we're talking with board certified rheumatologist Dr. Robert Goodman and we'll be talking about living with lupus and the symptoms, how common it is, who tends to get this condition and more. So we'll be taking your calls throughout the show as usual and as a reminder please make sure you're in a quiet room with your TV turned all the way down before making your call. The number is 318-219-4569 and you'll see it throughout the show a few times uh, so you can be sure and jot that down. So be sure and call us to get answers to your questions about all of this, about living with lupus. So Dr. Goodman, let's go ahead and start with, um, so May is Lupus Awareness Month, and let's talk about how important that is, that it gets a whole month to pay attention with this specific condition. Well, lupus is this mysterious disease, yeah. but, we're, but medical science is making significant advances, and there's a lot that uh, doctors can offer the patient with lupus. Recognize it, or recognizing it early, understanding why it occurs, uh, understanding the immunology about that, and we can uh, <laughs> talk about that a little bit, and then understanding uh, how to help people uh, meet goals uh, I, and to prevent roadblocks from getting better health. I uh, went virtually to uh, a meeting, a seminar just two weeks ago, uh, and listened to uh, several talks by who, uh, what many people consider one of the world experts in lupus. Her name is Michelle Petrie. She's the head of the lupus um, uh, team that is at Johns Hopkins Medical School. And she identified 10 roadblocks uh, that can interfere with uh, patients with lupus getting to their very best health. Now, I don't think live online, I can remember all of them, but, <laughs> but uh, uh, as we go through the discussion, we can uh, bring up some of those as yeah. we go forward. Oh, great. I'm sure they'll come up as we're sure. talking about You can point Absolutely. those out. So it's nice to have that, though, yeah. to have those 10 um, points lined out like that. Uh, yeah, she, uh, she had them. I have it in my ser uh, uh, <laughs> over here, but I don't think I can read it online. I'd, it'd be kind of a lot of dead air time, so we'll just wing it. <laughs> okay, that sounds good. So you want to start with defining. Is there a way to define lupus, what it really is, what it's doing to the body? Well, uh, lupus is an autoimmune disease in which the immune system makes a mistake and starts damaging different parts of the body. Um, it is similar it has some shared components, but it is different from another autoimmune disease, rheumatoid arthritis, and a third autoimmune disease, psoriatic arthritis. Psoriatic and rheumatoid arthritis are autoimmune diseases that affect things in a little bit different way, but lupus has been an autoimmune disease that has been, been seen by physicians for 800 or a thousand years. Um, a uh, physician in uh, the Middle Ages noted that people would get a skin rash on their face and it would look, it reminded this physician of a red wolf that is in Europe. And so uh, he, he thought that maybe they were, and, and there was a lot of superstition in you know 12th century Transylvania uh, or a 12th century Middle Europe uh, and they thought that these people were worshiping a wolf or were um, uh, maybe bitten by a wolf or uh, something of that nature and so he described the rashes of lupus and the Latin term for lupus is wolf and so that's where we still have this uh, we still carry forward that uh, name it's so interesting how something that long ago will lock in and carry forward, and we still use it, that name. Yes, and then uh, uh, in the late uh, 19th century and the early 20th century, uh, a famous physician, Dr. William Osler, uh, was a professor of uh, medicine uh, at McGill University in um, 
in uh, Ottawa, Canada, and he was also a professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins, and later he went to Oxford. And he noted that the people that had the skin rash of lupus that had been described in the 12th century would also have problems inside the body. They could also have problems in their kidneys. They could also have problems where they mysteriously lose blood uh, or have a hemolytic anemia. And uh, they might also have problems with other organs of the body. And he said this cutaneous or skin lupus could also be associated with systemic problems, like systemic problems affecting our kidneys, affecting our blood cells, affecting our circulation, affecting our heart and lungs. And so he coined the term systemic lupus erythematosus. Okay. And can the symptoms vary considerably from individual to individual? And if so, how is it diagnosed? Then? They really can, and, and it's diagnosed by having a high index of suspicion. Over uh, the years, we have lab tests that are helpful, but in some diseases like uh, breast cancer, for example, it is a biopsy, yes you have it, no you don't. But in lupus, we really diagnose it based upon circumstantial evidence, and that is uh, we put more in, as more and more different observations are coming to the forefront or affecting the patient uh, and there's no other uh, reasonable explanation and some of the lab tests are pointing towards lupus, then we uh, diagnose lupus based upon circumstantial evidence and it's sort of that medical detective putting together this uh, diagnostic puzzle. And is there any kind of blood work or anything to test to verify, or is it just... Yes, there, there are blood tests. Uh, they are not perfect, but they are very <laughs> helpful. And gradually, over the past uh, 30 or 40 years, those blood tests have gone from being very general blood tests to being more and more precise and pointing out uh, if a person has uh, this double-stranded DNA that the doctor should look for lupus that might affect the kidneys. If a person has something called SSA antibodies, we would look for uh, lupus to cause scarring in the skin. Uh, if we have an antibody that used to uh, have a serologic false positive test for a, a syphilis that we should look for people that might get blood clots oh. and so we can narrow down so that we can see uh, these markers might help us identify oh this patient we need to intercede right now and try to prevent somebody from getting a blood clot or from having uh, such bad kidney failure that they end up on dialysis okay. as an example. Ah. Well how, how common is lupus and, and is there any particular type or group of people who tend to get this condition? Well, well lupus occurs in about one person in 1900 or oh. about one person in 2000. So I would say uh, that if you uh, consider a large uh, high school or maybe a church in Shreveport on Sunday, <laughs> on a busy Sunday, um, there might be one patient uh, out of 2000 uh, that might get lupus. Um, it tends to affect women more than men and it's interesting that when you consider uh, uh, boys and girls before uh, puberty uh, it will affect women two to one over men and when you consider uh, men and women beyond menopause uh, beyond women's menopause, it'll be two to one. But in the uh, childbearing years, between age 15 and about age 45 or 50, lupus will uh, occur eight to one, 10 to one, maybe 12 to one women over men in those childbearing years. So it's really uh, a, a mystery. There's just a lot of variables that go into 
uh, this disease. Yeah, and I read that in some of your literature that stuck out, the between ages 15 and 45, where some of the symptoms may show up more. Is this one of those things, again, where we don't know why more women than men uh, we don't know, uh, and obviously some of it is genetic mm -hmm. uh, because it tends to run in families and if a person has a sister or a brother with lupus or if, if a person has uh, a sister or brother with other autoimmune diseases like maybe rheumatoid arthritis but a cousin of lupus called Sjogren's syndrome, then that might increase your chance of getting lupus. Um, and then obviously there's a hormonal component, an estrogen component uh, that really hasn't been figured out yet. Uh, but why does it occur in childbearing years? And a lot of times lupus will be fairly dormant during the pregnancy itself, but right at the end of pregnancy, uh, as after uh, uh, a lady has delivered their baby, that's when us lupus doctors and the high-risk OB doctors will be on guard in case lupus should flare up a few weeks or a month or six weeks uh, postpartum. Isn't that interesting? I mean, it sounds like it's another one of our natural protection things that the body does, maybe to yeah, protect and, the baby. And, and the common, and the common denominator is the immune system has to adapt. Uh, a, a mom's immune system has to adapt because of the, some, half the DNA in the baby is from dad. So, um, so the immune system has to have tolerance of that baby when it's in the womb and a breakdown in tolerance is sort of key in what we understand about the pathophysiology of lupus and uh, uh, that uh, centers on white blood cells behaving or misbehaving. So suppose we talk about, suppose you can be a T lymphocyte and that's like an upper level officer in an immunologic army. That's like a, a colonel or a, 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 a major. And if I am like a new uh, second lieutenant, uh, that would be uh, like a fresh enlisted man, and um, I am called a dendritic cell. So you're a T cell, mm -hmm. I'm a dendritic cell. And so my, prob my uh, uh, purpose in the immune system is to monitor the tissue, to monitor our skin, to monitor our joints to monitor different parts of the body, the lining around our colon, for example, to make sure there's no invaders there. And so as a dendritic cell in the skin, a person might get a sunburn. And so I, as a dendritic cell, would get this immunologic material as the skin recycles itself. It goes through a process called apoptosis or apoptosis. And um, immunologically, that apoptotic skin looks, skin cells, as they're going through recycling phases, looks a little different immunologically. So I, as a dendritic cell, might say, hey, this looks funny to me. And you, as a mature T lymphocyte, would say, that's just uh, Dr. Goodman, and he got a sunburn, and he should have, he was a knucklehead, and he should have worn sunscreen. <laughs> now, so I'm like, that's, calm down. That's, and that is a, a T cell that has tolerance. But if you were a T cell that would fly off the handle and say, that looks suspicious, we need to attack that apoptotic cell, let's call a code red, let's put out a lot of inflammatory markers, and let's cause inflammation of the skin, and that would be the lack of tolerance that would set up some person who is uh, genetically susceptible to respond to that environmental trigger 
uh, the uh, uh, UVA and UVB light and cause a skin rash that would be characteristic of lupus. And so that kind of scenario seems yeah. to occur in other parts of the body as well. That's interesting. And so are we born with all the, we born with all these T cells and these other cells? Is that just part of our makeup? It's part of our makeup, but there might be that one person in 2000 that doesn't have tolerance or doesn't have as much tolerance of that immunologic challenge uh, that they recognize, they don't, they recognize their immune system is recognizing those t uh, those uh, skin cells that are recycling that are going through apoptosis and they think that they are an, uh, an enemy a foreign invader or something that needs to be re reacted immunologically that same scenario could affect could be going on in the kidney that same scenario could affect the what doctors call the blood clotting cascade when you get a paper cut you have one group of chemicals uh, interact and form 10 chemicals interact and form a hundred chemicals and then they form a blood clot to close the clot of your pa blood clotting cascade but in but an intolerant T lymphocyte can be presented the normal blood clotting cascade by the dendritic cell and the T lymphocyte says let's attack that blood clotting cascade and let's cause a person to clot too much too much and so that could lead to catastrophic subset of uh, lupus that is called antiphospholipid syndrome absolutely okay we have a caller for you okay hi melinda thank you for calling what's your question hi thanks for being there and doing this um Two questions. Have they found that uh, lupus have, oh boy, this is a tough question. <laughs> have they found different types of lupus uh, re respond to immune suppressive medication better than others? And Thanks, have sir. they found, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> and have they found that immune suppressive medication is enough? Ooh. That's a great question, Melinda. And so let me go back to uh, our little analogy where, uh, where uh, Terry was playing a T uh, lymphocyte and I was playing a dendritic cell. Uh, and uh, another cell that we uh, may have to get Neil to come back into the studio for and play uh, a B lymphocyte. But there are general immune suppression uh, medications that can help most people with lupus uh, and it's Melinda, is that right? And uh, those are tend to be the anti-malarial medicines and uh, sometimes the steroid medicines, but there are specific medicines that target the B lymphocytes, the T lymphocytes, uh, and the dendritic cells. Um, a cell that uh, targets the B lymph uh, lymphocytes was approved for lupus about uh, seven or eight years ago. It is called Benlista. A cell, uh, um, a treatment that targets, um, helps with the T lymphocytes when they make a mistake, uh, when they spit out uh, uh, Pro, what doctors call pro-inflammatory pro proteins is called safnella and um, in the New England Journal of Medicine and safnella goes after the T lymphocyte 
uh, Ben Lista uh, goes after the B lymphocyte. And um, in the New England Journal of Medicine last fall was an article on a medication that goes after the blood dendritic cell number one. And so you know that when somebody has the, a dendritic cell named that way, they have intellectual property rights on that blood dendritic cell. So they would give an infusion that would interfere with the dendritic cell. So thanks for that question, Melinda, because we are starting to develop medicines that might help uh, if the main uh, problem with the immune system is a B lymphocyte, we might be going in the direction of something called Benlista. If it is the T lymphocytes and it, if, it's, if it's causing certain skin rashes that are uh, deep scarring skin rashes that are called discoid lupus, a medicine called Safnella is uh, very helpful. If it's going after the kidneys, a medicine called Lupkinus is uh, very helpful. And that den blood dendritic cell uh, 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 blocker that was uh, reported in the New England Journal of Medicine that is in stage two clinical trials may be a tool that rheumatologists will have in two or three or five years. But thanks for that call and letting us uh, kind of go into that uh, discussion. Does that answer your question, Melinda? Uh, I, I noticed you didn't mention any histamine. Oh, any histamines. Well, um, I would go back to uh, the um, in, in initial lupus, uh, before we go down that road, we would be using medicines that are used for malaria. We would be using medicines uh, that are the anti-malarials, Plaquenil is often used. We would be using medicines for st like steroids. The histamines are uh, usually mediated by eosinophils, a yet another group of white blood cells. And most of the time, histamines and eosinophils cause diseases that are, while autoimmune diseases, are often treated by our colleagues in allergy and allergy. And so there are medicines that are used to treat hive type skin uh, lesions that are mediated by eosinophils, uh, and they tend to block interleukin-4. And there are also medicines, and some of those same medicines are used for allergies uh, and al also used for asthma. So uh, eosinophils, histamine, antihistamines are the first step in treating those kind of autoimmune issues. Those autoimmune issues, Melinda, uh, take place in a matter of minutes to hours. So if somebody uh, gets exposed to poison ivy, for example, they will get a hivy rash within minutes to hours. And those are usually mediated by antihistamines and by steroids. And then if those persist, by medicines that would be used by our allergy colleagues uh, that uh, uh, go after interleukin-4. It seems like lupus is these cells that don't misbehave in minutes or hours that uh, are treated with antihistamines, but cells that misbehave over weeks or uh, days, weeks, or months, like the T and B lymphocytes and, didri and, didri and dendritic cells. How's that, Melinda? Does that answer your question? Uh, yes, I've had lupus since I was a teenager, except for those, because I'm old, they called it uh, sun poisoning that it was first identified. 
uh, I before they took any histamines off the market uh, about 30 something years ago I was using antihistamines to manage my lupus uh, I ended up having to switch to herbal antihistamines and I am 68 years old and, and not had any serious consequences uh, it, it entered it has not affected me. I'm doing pretty well just on the antihistamines, which suppress. Of course, I have to take, uh, you know, them daily and throughout the day. Uh, but, uh, yeah, uh, as long as I'm on antihistamines, I do really well and not had any hospitalizations, kidney issues. I support all those organs, uh, eating well. Uh, I try to support all my heart organs and things using herbal uh, supplements and eating properly. I don't smoke. I don't drink. Uh, getting proper exercise. And, um, yeah, mm-hmm. I don't hear a lot of that uh, going on now. We're saying histamines were taken off the market years ago when they were discovered mm-hmm. uh, as a help for rheumatoid arthritis, overactive immune system diseases like lupus. Yeah, uh, antihistamines don't aren't as central in treating uh, our modern conception of lupus, but they are central in treating uh, a- asthma and those types of allergies and hives. But uh, but you make some great points that uh, eating smart and uh, and doing things for your own health is uh, very important. And I was uh, talking to Terry just before we came on on the set that uh, we had. Uh, I had gone to this, I had listened to this lecture by uh, Dr. Michelle Petrie, and she talks about uh, self-care and self-help. And I have an article, uh, and I'm going to show it to the camera, uh, and I know people can't really tell what I'm showing, but what I am showing is this is a pie chart uh, from um, one of our most prestigious journals that is called the Ameri- um, uh, Arthritis and Rheumatism, and it's a pie chart of the community of bacteria called the microbiome of people who have active lupus versus the microbiome of people who have inactive lupus. And the take-home message, not that we need to see all the details of this chart, but that eating smart, eating a low inflammatory diet is one of the key things for self-help with uh, people with lupus. It is also helpful for many autoimmune diseases. Another help, self-help thing is vitamin D. Make sure you know what your vitamin D level is because uh, Michelle Petri and other lupus experts would say, not only do you have to need to get your vitamin D into the normal range, get it into the middle of the normal range. Thirdly, don't smoke. <laughs> and that's just sort of a, a mom and apple pie uh, type of thing. And then fourthly, and we've already talked about it, is that if, you, if your lupus gets worse when you're out in the sun, sunscreen, sunscreen, sunscreen. Um, and uh, use sunblocks so that you don't have that dendritic cell. He doesn't get a chance to make a mistake because you've uh, use sunscreens. We don't want that wayward dendritic cell go to that uh, T lymphocyte and present um, some apoptotic cells because you didn't use your sunscreen. 
Yeah, and, and vitamin D is so easy to get now. I mean, you can find a very pure, even a tiny drop a day. You can, yeah. you know, a little bit will really help with that. And and uh, you, we may remember that when COVID was first starting to hit and there wasn't a lot of other things to use for it, one of the things was uh, help your immune health so that you can deal with COVID by getting your vitamin D up into a good range. Right, okay. We definitely want to thank Melinda for that call. And now we have Leroy on the line for you. Hi, Leroy, what's your question? Hello. Well, okay, how you doing? Uh, my Good. question is, I've been diagnosed with prostate cancer, and I was wondering how high can my kids level go before I need surgery? Um, uh, you have uh, prostate cancer, and you're asking about how high should your PSA be before you uh, have surgery? I will tell you, I'm yeah. not the person to ask that. <laughs> you're going to need to talk to your urologist or your oncologist about that. And that is a complex uh, decision that has to be dealt with by them. They need to know um, how is the prostate uh, cancer just in the prostate or is it spread to other organs? And that is a very complicated question. I don't think it depends just on the level of your P, uh, uh, prostate specific antigen or your PSA. So check with your primary care, check with your urologist and um, uh, let them form a team and that could include a medical oncologist as well to answer that question. I'm not <laughs> qualified to do that. But thank you so much for calling, Leroy, thanks, and thank you for thanks watching. Thanks for the call. Yeah. Thank <laughs> and, and Dr. Goodman, you mentioned a while back about uh, the, the rash that you get uh, in your face, and you talked about scarring, and we just talked about sun, being out in the sun. Uh, so the sun does affect, could affect the symptoms if, you're, if you have lupus. That's right. So, so as, as we're out in the sun, mm -hmm. if you're out in the sun wearing shorts and a short sleeve shirt, you ha have thousands of skin cells exposed, exposed to the sun those skin cells will get hit by UVA and UVB light. Some of those skin cells will be altered and as those and or have a sunburn and so as our skin cells are, are suffered a sunburn then the cells get recycled. They go through this um, recycling phase called apoptosis or apoptosis. As the uh, skin cells apoptose they will look a little bit different to the dendritic cell, to the T lymphocyte, and if they look different and the T lymphocyte does not have tolerance of those uh, changing cells, the T lymphocyte will d instruct the dendritic cell and the B lymphocytes to attack that changing uh, uh, skin cell and cause a, a skin rash that is uh, usually starts as a little red spot about the size of my pinky or about the size of a pencil eraser um, and it will uh, be a dark pigment uh, and it will uh, then be followed by yet another uh, spot or a third or a fourth or a fifth spot and so I've had patients who uh, see me for lupus and they will have eight or ten spots on their left arm and uh, three or four on the left side of their face and they will have no spots on their right side of their face and their right arm and I ask them what do you do for a living well I'm a traveling salesman and I'm in a car a lot and so they're driving in the car from Monroe to Shreveport and the sunlight is coming in the left window of the driver's side of the car and they get these skin cells and now our viewers know that that could lead um, the dendritic cell to sense this 
changing skin cell presented to an intolerant T lymphocyte and that intolerant T lymphocyte would cause a cold red, cause a skin rash, cause an inflammatory response right around that damaged cell and cause a macule to develop um, and so a person will have eight or ten macules on that side of their face or they'll have half of a butterfly rash. Wow. You know that's something that we don't think about either and I've always been told to keep sunscreen in the car and at least put it on your hands because you don't know, you don't think about that. And we used to drive more with our you know, windows rolled down and hanging out the well, you know, side and who would have thought? You know, you and, know? And so there was a time when people would you know not use any sunscreen. They would use baby oh. oil and oh, go out and the iodine. Sun. And iodine me. and so just think you're just setting yourself up so most of us can get away with that but if you are susceptible to lupus then that can trigger a lupus flare and you're just tempting those intolerant T lymphocytes those intolerant dendritic cells to get a hold of that uh, apoptotic cell to present it and, and get a piece of it that's called an antigen immunologically present it to the uh, the T lymphocyte the T lymphocyte makes a mistake causes a code red, and then we have the disease lupus. Right. Okay. I think it's a good thing to wrap up with. We only have about a minute left, but if someone is watching and they already have been diagnosed with lupus, what is the difference in a lupus flare and maybe just severe fatigue? That they can well, uh, that uh, can be a difficult uh, problem, but a lupus flare, usually you're going to see uh, inflamed swollen joints. You might have uh, more active problems with the kidneys. You might have more active problems with blood cells or uh, anemia getting worse, and there will be lab tests that are markers of inflammation and there will be lab tests that are complement tests uh, that the your doctor can do and see oh my gosh this person's having a lupus flare they may need steroids in the short term but they need, may need some of these medicines that we've talked about in the intermediate and long term. All right before we go let's have your phone number really quick before we say goodbye. Um, and I'm at 318-424-9240 uh, that's 424-9240. Thank you. Dr. Goodman, so wonderful as always. Thank you again. Thank you. And thank you for watching. Leroy, you go take care of yourself. And Melinda, thanks for calling. We'll see you next time on Healthline 3.